Hi, hope you're well. It's Guy here and uh, welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Uh, in this episode, I speak to the musician, record label manager and photographer, Simon Allen. He's a founding member of the uh, funk and soul band, The New Master Sounds, also runs the band's label, One Note Records. Uh, Simon was born in Warwickshire, he moved to Leeds at the age of 18, and it's there he met uh, Eddie Roberts, the guitarist of The New Master Sounds, and they started a m- musical relationship that's still going strong today. Um, in this interview, Simon explains why one song changed everything for him when he was working in a record shop at the age of 14, why his administrative skills have been just as important as his drumming skills in his uh, musical career, and why being paid in cash on tour can often prove costly. Now, the new Master Sounds are one of my favourite bands of all time, so it was a real pleasure to speak to Simon. And I started off our interview at his house in Leeds by asking him about uh, how one of my favourite songs uh, came about, and that's a song uh, that you're about to hear a bit of now, which is called One Note Brown. band's um, sort of development in a way because it was released on a seven inch single and that seven inch single was discovered by a Scottish DJ called Keb Darge. Now did you actually put that seven inch single out yourselves or did you did someone else put that? No a guy called Clive from London had a a little imprint called Blow It Hard Records with a logo of a trumpet player and he decided to put that on a seven inch single. I think maybe 500 copies were pressed. And one of them ended up in the hands of Keb Darge, who I hadn't heard of at the time, but he, at that point, which is around about 99, 2000, uh, he was into deep, what was being called deep funk. Anyway, just to rewind to how the tune was um, created, there's, there was a, a guitarist called Dan Brown in fact, he's still alive because I spoke to him the other night. <laughs> and he met our our guitarist, Eddie Roberts. And Eddie Roberts had expressed that he wanted a bass player for a project, but he didn't want anyone who could really play bass very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, because Just explain it, that, why? I, because I think what he was aiming for was a sort of equivalent of organ bass, from yeah. some of the old soul jazz boogaloo stuff. And that's very simple. And it's usually, often it's played with somebody's foot and it's just single notes. Mm. Or it's with their hand, but it's not the kind of fancy bass playing that you get with funk, trained yeah. funk players. Yeah. So Dan said, oh, hang on, that, I'll, I'll buy a bass and I'll learn how to play bass not very well. Um, and so he gained the nickname Dan One Note Brown because... <laughs> That was the ethos of the type of bass playing that was required, just yep. one note. <laughs> um, and 
ironically, the tune that we came up with in the basement of my student house, um, it's quite difficult to play on the bass. I mean, it's quite intricate. So you'd have to be quite good. So he did get quite good quite quickly on the bass. <laughs> but so the three of us came up with this tune. We recorded it. Um, I think it was on an eight track in our friend Sam Bell's basement in Chapel Allerton. Hmm. And the purpose of the recording was really just to get a record of the tunes that we knew, the original tunes, so that we could teach them or learn them ourselves. But uh, we had an organist who, who was called Bob Birch and we just wanted them recorded, but it was only a functional recording. But that is the actual recording that ended up being put onto a seven inch single. Hmm. And Dan phoned me uh, the other day uh, and he now is he works in Bristol and he's the music editor for David Attenborough's latest um, big budget BBC series. Right. Uh, and uh, we were just reminiscing about... Does he still have a one-note approach? Uh, well, no, I think he's got many more <laughs> notes available. Uh, but he, I, I don't think he plays much bass anymore. No. And he does a bit of composition, but this the, him telling me that he's now the ed- editor for this whole series, just music editor just made me think, wow, okay, you're definitely a grown-up now, aren't you? <laughs> and he sort of um, returns the, the, the compliments because he's very impressed with what he perceives we've achieved hmm. as a band. Hmm. Um, so it's quite nice taking stock with people that you, that you started out with 25 or 30 years ago and then looking at, it, at them through your eyes and assessing where they've got to. Because hmm. sometimes it's... It's difficult to perceive one's own success. It always feels like maybe you could be doing better you, you, or there are other people who are more impressive. Mm. And I, I, was, I was talking to a friend last night, actually, about the fact that I'm doing this podcast today and how I, at the moment I'm feeling almost as, like the least creative that, I've, uh, that I ever am, which is in a big lull between, a big long gap between gigs. Mm. And... Um, that there's a sense of self-doubt that comes in. There's, oh, am I, can I really identify as the drummer of this band if the band hasn't played any gigs for two and a half months? Mm. It's a bit like, you know, if the tree gets chopped down in the woods and, and nobody hears it or some philosophical nonsense <laughs> that I've misremembered. I know what you're getting um, at. Uh, and, uh, but then I said that if I, yeah, 20-year-old me and and. 25-year-old me and 30-year-old me and 35-year-old me would all be extremely impressed with my achievements. Yeah. It's just 45-year-old me that sometimes isn't. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, yeah, it's hard to know at the time, isn't it, what's success or not, and I guess it's hard to... Yeah, you're always looking for the next thing, I guess. Is that true? You know, not everyone is, but I think... I know that often I am. I'm often... As soon as I've achieved something that... I've wanted to achieve for a long time. I'm thinking, okay, what's next? Is yeah. there an element of that? Well, I've sort of become... I remember when I had my first kid. Well, actually, I got, I got his mum to have him. I was just... I was a bystander. <laughs> um, but I remember there was, a, there was a sense of, oh, I can maybe hang up some of my random, less focused ambitions now. Because my life sort of is, has a new definition, which hmm. is I'm someone's dad. Um, and 
I remember thinking, oh, okay, I maybe thought when I was younger that I would be some kind of super su- superstar of something. I didn't know what, though. Just had these, these sort of vaguely formed ambitions to be successful hmm. in something creative. And I remember when I had a kid, I said, oh, well, I'm, do- I'm doing something and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I don't need to be massively hungry for yeah. whatever the next level is. Um, and the band that that Eddie and I have been in now for nearly 20 years has has been all over the world. Um, no one's heard of it in this country, really, apart from you. <laughs> um, but there are people in obscure parts of the world who do know about it. Mm. And it's, so it's a kind of micro-celebrity that uh, you can sort of get recognised in an airport in a bizarre, <laughs> obscure American town <laughs> by someone who's very keen yeah. and uh, knows all about it. But generally speaking, it's, it's still obscurity. But I guess that's, a, that's a, the whole sort of funk and soul scene, for want of a better sort of phrase, does generate that kind of feeling, doesn't it? Because I know I've been into it for a long time. And I know that I there's bands like yours and other bands, you know, like Sharon Jones and like Charles Bradley and the, and Anti Ballas and people like that who I just absolutely love these bands. And if I see them, it's it's incredible. And I think it's that's there's definitely a sort of niche. There's a love of that niche, isn't there? Yeah. What what got you into that in in the first place? What that that style of music? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, that's a, a, a easy question to answer. It was. James Taylor Quartet's Wait a Minute album from 1988. And I worked in a record shop at the time right. in Leamington Spa. So how old are you then? I got the job when I was 14, and it was the coolest job that anyone in my school had. <laughs> and people used to come in and sort of ask, wow, how do you get this job, and how could I get such a job? I'm like, well, you can't, because it's my job. <laughs> and it was, it was the only cool independent record shop in, in Leamington Spa. Now, all I'd done was one day decided I need a Saturday job. I may as well just go and ask them. And they'd happened that day to think they probably needed somebody. And they paid me 12 quid a day or something terrible. But <laughs> I, I got quite a lot of free records and I got just this general boost in my status, which is great. But one of the <laughs> records that I discovered through that job was the, the, the James Taylor Quartet album. And they did a cover of the Starsky and Hutch theme yeah. by Tom Scott. And I, that was just the most amazing thing that I'd ever heard. And up until then, I'd been into um, m- much more white music, like um, Led Zeppelin and um, oh, sort of maybe Cream and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, I, yeah, it just flipped a switch in me and sent me down this path. And the, several years later, like, I mean, maybe a I think maybe when I was in my late 20s, uh, I got to meet James Taylor, not the American folk singer, (laughs) the British Hammond player. Um, And we worked with him. And then uh, one day he called to say that um, he had a gig booked in Spain and he knew his drummer couldn't do it because they had a baby on the way. So could I dep for him? And I, I was, yes, definitely can. And then just thought, wow, this is the 
most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. And did you play the Starsky and Hutch theme? Yes. Oh, yes, we incredible. did. Incredible. In, in a kind of amphitheater, outdoor amphitheatre in Bilbao. And I think at the time, maybe the Master Sounds had... We, we'd travelled a tiny bit. We'd maybe been to Belgium once or something. But the, the notion of going on a plane to fly to a different country to play a gig was still such a massive thrill. Just a sense of like, oh, some, somebody wants me to do that. That must mean yeah. this, this is real. Yeah, I'm definitely a drummer, you know. And uh, it, I could trace it back to being, I guess, 88. Yeah, maybe I was 16 by the time that record came out, probably. But so, so when you got the job at the record shop, was your ambition at that point to try and be a professional musician? Or no, what were you I, thinking at the time? Well, at the time, I played a bit of piano um, at parties just to try and impress girls, really, <laughs> um, and other boys. Um, and is that something that your parents had sent you to lessons for piano? Or? I, I, we had a really crappy piano in our house, and I'd, I'd gone to lessons when I was eight, and I lasted six months. And it was Mrs. Moffat was this ancient lady who was very kind, who was trying to teach me a dozen a day. And so I got the kind of the manual dexterity. And then I used to learn the pieces and then I'd be looking at the music, but I wouldn't actually be, I'd be staring into space and it would all be coming from memory. And then she mentioned the idea of exams one day and I went, oh, no, 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 not for me. So I was, thanks. And I, and I quit. And it was just, I don't know why, but I did not like the idea of it, of it being turned into something that was formally assessed right. at the age of eight. <laughs> um, at, but she was, as I was leaving her house, she said, well, I, I understand. Um, and I just want you to promise me that you'll, just because you're not having lessons, you won't stop playing. And I didn't. A nice thing to say. Yeah, and it was lovely, and it's she's obviously been it obviously stuck with you. She, she must have been dead thirty years now, but yeah. it, stu- it did stick with me, and I did carry on playing. And I w- wish now that I'd continued having lessons because the more I would have learned, the the easier it would have been. But um, I, when I was in the record shop, I I hadn't ever been in a band, hmm. and I don't even think I thought it was even possible really to be in a band. So I don't know what I thought I wanted to do. I just knew that. Yeah, so it felt like it was someone else's world, This, this, the people on the records, that certainly I didn't imagine that I would become one of them. Mm. I guess. What, what, what else were you into then at that age? Were you... Oh, I was in... Oh, yes, I know what it was. I was into Super 8... So I was a proper nerd. I was into Super 8 films and Lego. Right. And I used to make um, these intricate animated films, which were terrible. <laughs> But I didn't have anything to compare them to. But a lot of work went into them and a lot of solitary work as well. So my mum must have just thought, oh, I do hope he makes some friends. <laughs> so did you make films with the Lego, like animated the Lego? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Have and you seen that that's made a comeback recently? There are, there's a whole thing now of Lego recreations of football. Football? Yeah, from the World Cup, from the European Championship. You were ahead of your time. Oh, Wow. Yeah, well, uh, mine What was, were your Lego pieces doing? Mine were generally having little car chases or explosions. Because I think I, I, my main influence at that age, age, say, 13, was the A-team. Yes. And uh, so I did... I was a huge A-team. Yeah, before. it was great, wasn't it? And nobody ever even got wounded. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of firepower. they crash with a helicopter yeah. into a cliff and they just walk away. Yeah, and they just look a bit cross and maybe have, have a grazed... Yeah. 
staggering out covered in, in dust. And anyway, so, uh, so my thing was, I think I thought that I wanted to be a film director. Hmm. And I did get into this technical side of it, and I used to edit the the film and cut it up and hang it up on, in my bathroom on a washing line and label it all and then splice it all together. But really, I, I think it was the it was the technical side of it that I had the interest in, and I didn't really have the 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 narrative drive hmm. or the skill. And I, I when I realised that later on in my life, I was a bit disappointed. But I thought, oh, fair enough, you can't. You can't be everything, can you? And mm. I have friends who are film directors, and I've seen, I've been on set with them, and I've done a bit, the occasional bit of bit part acting, and I've just been amazed by what they can hold in their head mm. all at once, mm. and thought, yeah, that that's not the kind of impressive that I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pleased to know people who are, who have yeah. that. Um, so, sorry, I, I'm a rambler, as you can tell. That's fine. <laughs> that works well for a two-hour interview. Yes. So um, this was Leamington Spa. So what was that like growing up in, in Leamington? Is that where you grew up? Yeah. Then? Yeah. yeah. I, well, I grew up just outside in a little sort of modern village um, uh, outside Leamington. But I used to go everywhere on my bike. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was just... I, I don't like going back there now because I, I don't really know anybody there anymore. And... I guess it just reminds me of a time in my life when I didn't feel like I had anything going for me apart from that job in the record shop. Mm. And then the record shop became horribly corporate as well, which was... So initially I could play on a Saturday, I could just play Doors records if I wanted. And I did. <laughs> um, or, or or Bob Dylan or stuff that was in, in 1986 or seven probably quite obnoxious to most people who yeah. who come in to hear Bross or <laughs> um, uh, but I just remember thinking yeah this is cool and some people would come in and it, it, they were clearly refreshed to hear some old 70s rock and stuff mm. but um, gradually the, the shop became more like an actual business and they got more and then it was just right you have to play stuff that we're trying to shift so it's Chris Rear right yeah uh, driving home for Christmas <laughs> I was just about to say driving home for Christmas <laughs> and uh, Simply Red um, uh, Stars yeah like that, and to Pow and yeah. all um, okay and I see the way things were going yeah some of that music now I quite like listening to in a kind of nostalgia nostalgia yeah yeah, yeah. But yeah, I felt like okay, they've they've sold out. You know, what all I knew about business at the time, just like they should just let me play the doors. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you mention though? You 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 don't like going back there because you feel like it's a time where there wasn't much going for you. So why do you feel like that? Why do you feel like that about that time? I guess because I had I didn't know what I wanted mm. really, and I hadn't had any kind of success, and I was just at school, and. That, yeah, I don't. Um, when I, I came to Leeds to to go to college, and it, it immediately felt like Leamington Spa was lame by comparison. I think a lot of friends that I met at uni came from London, and they had the opposite feeling. Was oh Leeds is fun, but as soon as they finished college, they went back to London because Leeds isn't really a real city as far mm. as they're concerned. What did you Very come much. to Leeds to study? Uh, initially, I came to do languages. Mm -hmm. I, I had uh, linguistics in German, and there was a third subject you had to take, and I really was very keen to learn Italian. And I got there, and I wasn't even late, but 
they just said, oh, no, Italian's full. You'll have to do Portuguese. <laughs> it's like, but I'm not really interested. They're like, they said, well, you know, it's quite similar. Anyway, uh, and then I thought, okay, Brazil. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And they said, no, the, sorry, the Brazilian Portuguese class is also full. You have to do European Portuguese. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So I did a year of European Portuguese. And um, now I can say muito bem. Or, or, which obrigado yeah muito bem obrigado <laughs> I, I don't even know if that's the right accent now but i remember at the time it sounded that the the spoken accent sounds quite a lot like russian foul mm. portuguese um <laughs> oh that means i speak portuguese ironically because i don't <laughs> but i managed to pass a year's exams in it but i was resenting the fact that i wasn't learning italian mm. and i've since been to italy on holiday and been stumbling around trying to create italian out of my fragments of french and spanish mm-hmm. And just failing because <laughs> actually the vocab is quite different. Yeah. But I was a linguist. That was my thing okay. at school. And uh, I got to Leeds Uni and that's when I discovered, I got this buzz for music because um, there was a piano in my hall of residence outside the dining room. And I used to play after every dinner time. And a, a, a trumpet player came up to me and said, oh, I like your style, man. Um, <laughs> we've got a... a a little band and we've got a gig at the uh, coming up do you want to join the band and I said yes and it, but it was actually it was the kind of band that is sort of jazz funk and soul like the kind of band I'm now in yeah for which I was deeply underqualified as a piano player but I somehow managed to blag a, a couple of gigs in that and the the one that really switched it for me was a freshers gig in a tent outside Leeds University Student Union hmm. probably in 1992 and there were maybe 500 people in the audience. And I did my crappy blues-based piano solo on a, uh, a keyboard. And it seemed to go well. And I just thought, oh, I was born for the stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was so misplaced because the, the, the skills that I had were not adequate. Mm. And, but I just had this sudden desire. This, it just lit something in me. Mm. And I thought, right. I want to do this, but I, I was playing drums at the time as well. And, and yeah, so how did you get into drums in the first place? Well, that was um, when I was seventeen or eighteen at school. Uh, I, I I got roped in to play crappy keyboards, like Casio keyboards, in a, in a little band with with a friend of mine, and we did Pink Floyd covers. Hmm. And there was a drummer, and whenever there was a little break, I would just really wanted to have a go on his drums, and it really pissed him off <laughs> but I would I found that I could do it straight away yeah and it seemed like oh there's something wonderfully direct mm. about the drums it doesn't have to be mediated by any knowledge yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah I mean I guess there is there can be maths involved yeah as I found out since I started teaching drums um but that's not how it seemed to me it just mm. seemed to me that you move your arms and legs and the sound comes out and there's no funny business so that probably out of laziness <laughs> i thought this is probably the one for me was there something that before you started playing though because i know when i before i started playing the bass and when i started playing the bass for the first time i realized that what i was hearing all the time was the bass oh. and i only really realized that when i started playing it and started learning bass lines was it a similar thing for you were you hearing the drums more no, than anything else i don't think i was right um it's really weird so I can go back and listen to songs that I was really into from the ages of sort of 15 to 20 and realise that I've never listened to what the drummer's doing. 
at any point. <laughs> like I've listened to the whole song. There's things like, um, I guess, Beatles albums and David Bowie stuff. And, yeah. And since then, I've looked at it a bit more. But but I was always more interested in what the piano was doing. Mm. Um, but it's it's fun when you go back to a song that you think you know, and then you really. So for you, I guess, if you always heard the bass. It'd be more interesting for you to go back to a song that you think you're really familiar with and try yeah. and figure out what another of the instruments is doing. Yeah. And realise that this whole time you didn't really know. Yeah. But listening, you have to have headphones on to do it, don't you? Yeah. I, was, I was running earlier before you arrived mm. and I had a disco playlist on um, <laughs> for motivation. Yeah. Good four uh, to the floor, drumming, uh, it, running it, beats. It, it was um, Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind and Fire. Now... I consider myself to be very familiar with that song. And as I was running through the woods, I was hearing level upon level of extra um, intricate arrangements mm. of strings, horns, backing vocals mm. that I'd never noticed before. Yeah. And I was amazed. And I thought, oh, it would be a really good intellectual exercise to sort of deconstruct that tune mm. and try and identify all the parts of it. Um, because I bet there's loads more that I haven't even heard yet. Mm. And I've heard that tune a hundred times, but headphones and a focus. Yeah. And, and it, a lot of it's like quite far out mixed to the left or just, it's been placed really carefully in the mix by some genius production. Yeah, I've had that experience in two different periods actually, because so when I first started playing the bass, obviously until I started playing any music, when I heard songs when I was young and then a teenager before I started, you just hear the whole song. You don't think about yeah. the different elements. So then after I started playing the bass, I would then go back and hear the same songs and, oh, there's the bass, there's the guitar. there's And it's, then, it's a whole different experience. Then I had a whole second bit when I started getting involved in production and recording. And then you listen to songs again and think about how they've actually put the whole thing together and recorded all the different... And how they've and carved out space in the frequencies yeah. and, and placed things really deliberately. It's mind-blowing, yeah. isn't it? So you, you produce, do you? Yeah. Because that's not something I've ever got into, but that's what... Uh, I mean, I have to say at this point that my skills are pretty rudimentary and we just stick a bunch of mics up and, and hope for the best. <laughs> but, but you it, mix we, it we, afterwards. We mix it afterwards, yeah. yeah, and normally get someone else to master it because that yeah. seems to me a dark art. But I, th I think it is. But, <laughs> but the more you do the production, the more you'll learn. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the thing. But I really enjoy it. That's, I love the sort of putting the things together. I mean, is that... So you've not actually done any of the production side? No. Um, so... The, the the truly creative person in our band is Eddie Roberts, the guitar player. So how did you meet Eddie in the first place? Dan One Note Brown. Yeah. Um, listeners should refer to the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> uh, he came back one day, because Dan and I had been kind of musical husband and wife for the first couple of years of, of being at university, and we'd mm. been in bands together. And then Dan had met Eddie and joined his band, and I, was, I felt like a spurned lover. <laughs> and Dan would go off and do gigs... And this was for the first time when I wasn't doing the gigs with him. And I knew there was a, a music college drummer. And I was thinking, oh, I don't stand a chance then. And then one day Dan came back and said, oh, I've been talking to Eddie. And he says that he really wants a, a, a shit drummer. <laughs> a, bit, a, bit like, a bit like he wanted a shit bass player. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's hearing too much schooling from these music college players. Yeah. They, they, they're just a bit too fancy. Yeah. And he wants something that's raw. And I went, oh, <laughs> I, 
my lord, I, 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 I know. Yes, I, Percy, I want you. I know just the shit drummer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so he said, so anyway, um, Eddie's going to come round and we'll just have a little jam to see if he likes your style. And we had a jam. And he apparently did like the style. And he, he said in his usual arrogant way. Yeah, okay, I can work with that. Can, yeah, can mould mold you. He, he, it's funny, Eddie, I think of him as, as kind of gruff northerner. He's, he's Welsh. <laughs> but when he came to Leeds at age 18, he'd had his entire education in the Welsh language as well. Right. And his name's Cadair Dick. Right. And uh, nobody understood a word he said and, or, or his name. So he had to rename himself Eddie. And he's very adaptable. And I think after... A, a short while he started to sound like he was from Manchester right which is sort of geographically between yes. Wales and Leeds so yeah. he was morph- morphing his so, so he could be understood now he lives in the States and he has a semi-American accent <laughs> right. um, but it, it's, a, it's a good strategy for being understood anyway yeah. uh, where, where, so he so we had this little audition and I passed the test and that, that's when the three of us started playing together hmm. and making music and we had a band which we called the Master Sounds, yeah, because we didn't know that was already the name of a band because <laughs> the internet hadn't been invented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and that we we made I think one seven inch single recording, and that was with Sam Bell on congas, and Sam was the guest percussionist on our latest record, which is called Renewable Energy. Yeah. Uh, so we still have a, I, I don't see him very often but we still have a relationship with him and he's just texted me to say he can do our gig in Leeds on the 21st which may have already happened when you're listening to yeah, this that's podcast true, yeah. uh, so that's the 21st of September yeah, 2018 yeah, yeah. For, future, that, for reference that's in the past <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so you met Eddie and he liked your style yeah and then how long was it then before when you got that One Note Brown single and then what happened after that? Well, hang on. Um, is that the right chronology? No, no sorry. No, One Note Brown is new Master Sounds. That's right. Yeah, God, I can hardly remember. And so nobody except you or I will care about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we did two years as the Master Sounds yeah. in this very dry sounding band because it was bass, guitar, congas and drums. So not very much harmony. But the way Eddie plays guitar, it's almost like two guitarists yeah. anyway, because he plays rhythm, lead, and riffs. And did he have a very sort of clear direction at that point about where he wanted things to go, or was it a collaborative thing? Uh, he was definitely in charge, and I, I sort of have always looked at it as a kind of benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> um, but uh, Sam and Dan were both, um, I think, a bit. Uh, well, significantly more independently creative and ambitious, which is why they no longer work with Eddie, hmm. because they didn't really like taking instruction from him. Or, or it was more that they had their their own things to say, so yeah. they moved on. Yeah. Whereas I've always been very grateful for some leadership. <laughs> <laughs> um, Happy to take direction. Yeah, I'm a, cl- a collaborator yeah. Um, yeah. rather than an auteur, I would say. <laughs> So yeah, so you were doing a couple of years as the Master Sounds, and then when did the sw- when did you realise that the Master Sounds was taken? Um, not until uh, Sam and Dan had moved on and decided to do other projects, leaving me and Eddie with this sense that we did want to carry on working together. Hmm. So our job was to find a bass player and a, an organist, and when we did, 
which was Pete Shand and Bob Birch, um, we thought, okay, well, we should, the, the sensible thing would be to call it the new Master Sounds. Yeah. And it was around about the same time that somebody pointed out that the Master Sounds was um, where's Montgomery's brother's band? What's his name? I can't remember. Like Chip or Butch or something. <laughs> um, and and somebody produced an LP, which clearly clearly was um, that was the name of the band rather than the name of the album. Mm. And Eddie claimed he'd always thought it was the name of an album. Mm. And it's entirely okay to name your band after somebody else's album. Right. I think. Okay. <laughs> According to the rock and roll protocols. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well. It's, the Deacon Blue named themselves after a song, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Was which, that uh, Steely Dan? Yeah. Which is called Deacon Blues, I think. Uh, but that's the only example that comes to mind mm. of something of that nature. Let's carry on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, oh, uh, yeah, so, we, so it, it was a happy coincidence that we needed to rename the band anyway because it was a different lineup and, a, and we, we were taking it in a new direction. Mm. A new direction that was based on the music of the Meters. Yes. Because we realised, oh, uh, if we've got organ, then this is the same lineup of, that's making that, that's coming from that sound. But all we knew about the meters at the time was what was on a cassette that some DJs had made, Freddie. And uh, we really liked it, and we found that the the sound that the four of us made naturally mm. was had something in common with it. That the the rawness of it, the the, the, the unschooled sound, hmm. I think. Um, there was something about it that made it feel that it was appropriate for us to go down that road. And that's you record most things live as a band, don't you? Is that why you sort of went down that road? Yes. Um, as it, Do you mean as opposed to recording the instruments one at a time? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, because um, we were, I guess, modelling ourselves on the metres. In, and if you listen to a metres tune... It, there's no no two bars are the same hmm. really there it's clear that it's being improvised in the moment and every time they play the tune it will be quite similar so there's there is it's not fully improvised but in terms of the specific notes if you were to score it out you'd find that ziggy the drummer is is varying it ever so slightly and that suited us and that's what we naturally did hmm. So it wouldn't make any sense to try and record the drums on their own because the drums are own uh, the part that I'm playing is only a response to the part that Pete is playing on the bass and that Eddie's playing on the guitar, hmm. and it all works together in real time. Um, and also, I guess if you if you're recording separately, one at a time, you've probably got to have a click track, and the the way that we played and the type of music and the the kind of the approach very much involves variation in tempo. So that wouldn't make sense either. It would just sound stiff. Um, when we get excited, we speed up. Hmm. And we, we nowadays we pull the tempo around deliberately hmm. and, and consciously. And we have a series of um, sign language vocabulary that that we can communicate to each other if we feel the tune is racing away or if it's l lacking, it, you know, it's lagging behind or whatever. Mm. Um, so, and also it's way quicker. So if you, if you haven't got a load of money, which we didn't, then you can just 
bang out tune after tune and it takes you around about the time it takes you to play the tune. (laughs) (laughs) So there were lots of reasons why it worked. And um, yeah, I think the raw, immediate, improvised nature of it is is the key to its appeal as well. Hmm. You mentioned money there, actually. When did it become uh, apparent to you that you could actually sort of make a living doing this? It's only just become apparent, and that it's 20 years in. Right. <laughs> um, that throughout the career of the band, the, it seems there's been kind of financial catastrophe, <laughs> everyone near to the brink of ruin. Right. And we've had some real, really silly mishaps where we've... We've lost large amounts of cash um, in various countries and come home with nothing. <laughs> and why is that? Just because of the, the way that it's been promoted? or No, literally, oh. we've lost the cash. <laughs> because well, of, like the, way, because of, of the way the cash was lost, like, like it fell out of a pocket or, you know. Right. The, no, we did, we've had, um, we had some money stolen the first time we ever went to Fuji Rock Festival, they, um, we, we didn't, so it's just the four of us and mm. we didn't have any staff or infrastructure. I don't even know if there was a booking agent involved. There may have been for Fuji Rock, but um, I just remember getting there and we were bleary eyed <laughs> because we'd flown straight from the States and we decided to interrupt a US tour to, to take this opportunity to play Fuji Rock for the first time. And we'd been traveling for 36 hours and we got to the hotel lobby and somebody just went, here's your money, please sign for this in a brightly lit hotel lobby. And it was 4,000 pounds in cash or something mm. that was the remainder of the fee. And I realized that, oh, maybe it was me that was supposed to have arranged to not get paid in cash. Or maybe it's maybe we should be being paid in cash. Anyway, that cash went missing over the course of the weekend, right. and it it wasn't our carelessness, except for the fact that we should never have agreed to be paid in cash in the first place. Sure, um, but that was really demoralising. And then there was one time we were in Spain, and we were getting paid everywhere in cash, and I, I had it in in an envelope in my pocket, and you know we'd been maybe away for two weeks or something and there was 3,000 euros and and that wasn't just wages that was to cover some of the costs we like the flights and everything else and the van hire and it that just all went like it it was pickpocketed or fell out of my pocket in the air so what was do you remember the moment when you realized yeah and it was horrible and we've also had the the very first um time we had an album out which was Keb Darge presents the new master sounds we were at Madame Jojo's in uh in Soho and Keb was DJing and we played with the full nine-piece lineup with Cleve Freckleton and Celine Fleming and the Haggis Horns yeah and we all got hammered and there were two boxes of records <laughs> from uh, no one knew really who'd brought them maybe hmm. Keb had brought them but they were for us to sell um, and uh, maybe we sold one or two and then we all got hammered and woke up the next day and someone said Oh, who's got the records? And nobody knew who'd got the records. Nobody had the records. Nobody had the record had been left in the kitchen of Madame Jojo's, and no one was there. So we we got a minibus back to Leeds and tried to phone on on the Monday, and there was no sign of them. And they that was it. Maybe twenty five or fifty copies of this album that now you cannot get. Right. Um, 
and so it, someone's it, got them somewhere well or, or someone just sold them but at the time they would have been worth nothing yeah because there would have just been a whole load of albums by a band no one's heard of <laughs> I mean, it's not that much different now, but uh, <laughs> there are people around the world who would love that on vinyl. Yeah, they would. Um, but there was, it, there was just this sense of there's there's no one responsible for this because it's a scenario that hasn't come up before, and we've been in that situation so many times. We we the, one of the first times we finally got merchandise like T-shirts and stuff. We we didn't really have anyone looking after it, so we had boxes of T-shirts and various other bits and pieces, CDs and things. Uh, and we were in New York and we had to get two taxis out of a venue to get to the hotel. And Joe was in the taxi that had the merch box, but he didn't take responsibility for it. And it wasn't really his fault. He was probably hammered. And it wasn't part of our routine because we didn't have a routine. Yeah. So $1,500 worth of merch got left in a cab and never recovered. <laughs> so it, it sounds like, what, buffoons? How have, <laughs> how have we even stayed together for 20 years? But somehow we weathered all these setbacks and learnt to just accept that, oh, ho-hum, it's yeah. not the end of the world. We, at least none of us is injured, you know, we've all got our health. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of making a living out of it, it it's it's only really been... Since um, the the you know the gradual digitization of the music industry, yeah, that coincided with us having more and more releases in the system, has uh, very gradually led to a situation where royalty income hmm. is um, a reasonably significant part of the picture, and royalty income is great because. It's essentially free money. I mean, it, it isn't free because it's it's payment for all the hard work that we put in sometimes 10, 15 years ago that we weren't paid for at yeah. the time. So yeah. we, we invested a lot of creative effort and time and energy. Yeah. And now it, it, the, the payment comes 10, 15, 20 years later. <laughs> and, and occasionally that'll come in the form of a, a, a windfall when someone wants to use a track on an advert or yeah. someone wants to use a track in a documentary or a feature film. And those kind of things are entirely random. There doesn't seem to be anything that you can do to, to increase the likelihood of them happening, in my experience. Although Eddie does keep nagging me to go to LA and go around schmoozing uh, music supervisors to just just to try and convince them to delve into our catalogue. Is that for TV programmes, you mean? Yeah, TV and film. Movie, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's he's probably right, but the notion of schmoozing people at Hollywood parties, <laughs> I, I don't know, I guess I'd have a USB stick. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I, I'm Simon from the new Master Sounds. You may have heard of... Uh, you, no, you haven't heard of us. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to give you this USB stick and uh, take a listen. Some great instrumental stuff. It'll be great for your movie, you know. Like, I, the whole idea makes me cringe. Right. But I think that probably I, now that we're all grown-ups, I've got, as I mentioned before, I've got friends who are directors and I know a guy out there and I know another guy who's a special effects supervisor for all these comic book Marvel films and right. stuff. And just, I've probably now got enough actual connections of people who already know me and know the band and like the band. Yep. So it wouldn't have to be that 
awful cold calling cold, yeah, yeah, yeah. scenario. And, and the, the idea that people would just go, no thanks, not interested. I'm like, oh, well, I didn't <laughs> think you'd be interested. I don't know why I came. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long way to come for yeah. that reaction as well, isn't it? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I need to just maybe make a list of the people I already know and say, okay, guys, would it be, you know, can you introduce me to hmm. someone? And they probably can. So that's probably my next job because I project, do run the, the record future. label. Yeah. It's exactly the kind of thing I should be doing. So when did you start <laughs> to do the record label then? Um, 2003, uh, we had had... So the, the, that first album where we lost 50 copies of it in, <laughs> in Madame Jojo's Kitchen, uh, that was on a label called Barely Breaking Even, <laughs> which <laughs> the clue was in the name, but <laughs> we never saw any money for it. And there were nine people in the band... And there was this general sense of, we've been ripped off. Someone's, yeah. someone's nicked the money. And I had this suspicion that maybe there wasn't really that much money. Um, and that's why we hadn't really seen any. Although Eddie came up with some story where he thought that the, the label maybe was in trouble and they, they reinvested what should have been our royalties in some album by Pete Rock or something but that could be a scurrilous rumour but whatever it is I I thought okay the only way to really know is to set up a label and then there won't be so many middlemen involved mm. and we can see if, is there any money to be made so um, we decided to call it One Note Records named after One Note Brown yep. which was named after Dan Brown the, the original bass player yep and uh, we made an album in 2003 called Be Yourself. And that's the one that had Corinne Bailey Ray on one of the tracks. Hmm. And another guy called LSK, Lee Kenny, who at the time, I think, was doing some... He, he's a, a rapper and a singer and songwriter and poet. And at the time, I think he was doing stuff with Faithless. Um, but he also had his own deal with Sony, I think and a band and he was he was quite into reggae but pete knew him and and we decided okay let's let's get a couple of guest vocalists on because we knew we we recognized that not that many people are interested in an instrumental band yeah and we just slimmed down from the nine piece funk soul review extravaganza where we might sometimes wear suits and there was three horns and two singers Strip that down to just bass, drums, guitar, and organ, and thinking, is anyone going to want to hear this? Probably not. Hmm. Not many people did want to hear it. It turned out, <laughs> especially not the promoters who had just got used to the idea of us as a great nine-piece vocal and horns thing, and then we say, oh, we, well, we'd now like to come to your club as an instrumental four-piece," and they're <laughs> like, "Well, that won't work." <laughs> um, uh, and so that was a bit of an uphill struggle but we made the record and we I think we, we got some kind of f festival gig and we agreed that we would use the money from the festival gig to pay for the album we wouldn't get paid so we all made that decision um, and so initially the record label was a four way partnership but it became clear that I was the only one who was really going to be doing any work on it and oh, so you were kind of driving it, were you? Yes, and it's yeah. because I was the one with the strongest admin skills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, which are not to be underestimated, are they in a band? No, someone they has are to. Yeah. Vital skills and, in a and band. And I, because when I left college, I was um, I was on the dole for some time, 
uh, it was in the days when you could just go in and go, well, I want, I have a dream. I want to be a ballet dancer. <laughs> and there aren't any jobs at the moment for ballet dancers. <laughs> so they would say, okay, well, here's a sign here for your 35 quid yeah. and come and see us in a month. And if you haven't got any ballet dancing work, we'll maybe look into giving you some training. Not in ballet dancing though, but they did persuade me after a while uh, to do a course in Microsoft Excel, okay, which they were paying for. And that was the most useful thing I've ever done in my whole education, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Like, I, I, I wish they'd teach you spreadsheets and tax in school. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to just know, aren't you? Anyway, that was useful. And I, I, I took my spreadsheet knowledge and I managed to figure out how to set up a record label. And, and this was... 2003, so the internet existed, but I think we were still on dial-up modems and it wasn't very good. And the idea of media, hmm. uh, that other than text and maybe very low-res photos, was kind of not really happening. Hmm. And I remember we first got a website going in 2004, um, which you, you definitely had to have a boffin. For, if you wanted a website. Yeah. Whereas you don't but, really now, do you? No. You can set it up yeah. using all the tools. You can use Squarespace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't yet sponsor this podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the few. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, then it was the Boffins were the gatekeepers. Yeah. Yeah, were you one of those? Because you were I in was, IT. I yeah. was one of those yeah. buffins. Yeah, I used to be a web developer. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So I had one, and he was a he was a musician, but he was an IT buffin. Yeah. And uh, I would go through him, and it took months to set up, and there was so little flexibility. And if I wanted anything changed, it all had to go through him, and it would take weeks and everything. Um, but the label involved registering with a body called PPL. Yeah. Which I think might stand for Public Performance Limited. Yeah. And that um, is something that labels are a member of. And through that, you can register all your songs and you receive money from Airplay. Yeah. And at the time, it all felt a bit academic because we weren't getting any Airplay or were likely to get any Airplay. But I was quite fastidious. And so I registered everything properly. And they did have a website, a very rudimentary one, and um, there was another thing called MCPS, which still exists, which stands for Mechanical Copyright Protection Society. Mm. And they collect money on behalf of songwriters. You probably know all this, but this is for the yep. listeners' benefit. Yep. And so I found out that if you want to press some CDs or records and the songs are published by somebody even if they're your own songs, you have to, as the label, you have to pay MCPS a percentage of the dealer price of what you're planning to sell it for, uh, for the right to use the written song on a, on a physical object. Hmm. Um, so, I, so even though they were almost all our tunes, I was having to pay six or 700 quid to press a thousand CDs so that our publisher could collect that money and then give some of it back to uh, the ones yeah. of us that had written the songs, yeah. which, which sounded quite crazy. It's a roundabout route, But I was it? doing it by the book, because I, yeah. I wanted it to be seen that I was doing the right thing. You know? and, um, um, and we, we pressed, I think, at, at just CD. That's one of the only records that we've done where it hasn't been on vinyl. Mm. And it was because the 
the cost of vinyl seemed shockingly high to me at the time and we didn't have any spare money. Um, and I remember thinking, well, this is, this is great. We've now got a CD, so this should probably do well and get played. And, and what I didn't have as a label was any marketing budget or any notion of what marketing might involve. And I was baffled by, by, by we weren't doing better than we were. And I've subsequently realised that the kind of people that usually start record labels are people who've got some spare money that they've earned in another sector. Right. And it might be a, a bit of a vanity project for them, but they grasp that you've got to throw money at it to potentially get it to come back and you have to hire a publicist and mm. all that. And so now we... I, I, it took me a while, but I've learned that we... Unless I'm doing it myself, we hire a publicist. And doing it yourself is not advised because... I mean, maybe if I'd just been the label, that would have been fine. But because I was in the band as well, yeah. it was very personal. And so the notion that uh, people might not be interested was a bit tricky to handle psychologically. Mm. You know, we're, oh, yeah. <laughs> Could, ca can we have a gig? Do you like the album? It's very, it's personal when they say no yeah. or, or don't reply. Yeah. It's um, easy to take it personally, isn't it? When yeah, that yeah. kind of thing happens. <laughs> <laughs> so were you then, so this is, that was the setting up the label, but in terms of, you know, you mentioned some of the money mishaps and all the rest of it, but were you doing other work then throughout the time that, you know, you were in the band and, well, well the band's been there the whole time, hasn't it? But were you doing other work as well? Yeah, well, initially, in the very early years of the band, when in, in, we, the, the new Master Sounds formed in 99 and we quite soon after that got a residency at a club in Leeds called the Atrium mm. and that was that was every Friday and Saturday and I remember they used to pay us 60 quid per gig per man which was very good to have a guaranteed 120 quid a week for the band that you're actually into yeah so it was a really cushy situation but at the time I was I still had ambitions to work in the film business and I was um, I'd managed to do oh yeah as well as the Microsoft Excel free course for <laughs> Dolly's I managed to get on a film and TV video production course mm. also paid for via the Dole it was just it was for unemployed people and through that I got a traineeship as a camera assistant and I then started getting the odd job on um, commercials or TV drama, a bit of 16 mil stuff around Leeds. Like, you know, I might get one day on at home with the Braithwaite's as clapper loader or something right. when, their, when their guy was ill. <laughs> um, but then I, I, I started to get a bit of a connection with people in London and a friend of mine um, would put me forward for jobs and I'd go and stay with him and we would go and work for a week or so on various things. And I found that extremely exciting and I was getting paid for it. Um, and it felt like, oh... This for the, you know, I'm in my late 20s and I've never really seen any money from anything. <laughs> so it was very appealing to potentially earn 500 quid for a 12-hour a, a day on a commercial and be in what seemed to be this exciting grown-up world. Yeah. Um, but I kept doing this and, and putting a, a, a substitute drummer in my place for the residency back in Leeds. And after, I think there was one time I got a four-week job on a, a low-budget feature film in which I was living in London. So I, I decked my 
drumming out for four consecutive weeks. And when I came back, Eddie sat me down and he said, look, this isn't the type of band that can have depths. It's mm. like, if you want to be in it and you believe in it, then you're going to have to choose between your London film work and this band. Mm. And at the time, that seemed like a very difficult choice to make because the band had a weekly residency in a club. We occasionally would go across the Pennines to Manchester in, a, in one of Eddie's clapped out vintage cars <laughs> and we would play in the corner of Dimitri's restaurant. Yeah. Um, Matt and Fred's original place may have been going then and we would sometimes get a gig there. But it was all sort of 50 quid, 60 quid, um, get back at three in the morning, take yeah. your own gear. Formative years, paying your dues kind of stuff. Yeah. But it didn't look like the beginnings of a promising career. But there was something about Eddie who is definitely... Um, he is out of... He's an extraordinary musician. World class. Hmm. And you can kind of tell, and I could tell. And I thought, no, actually, if he believes in me, I definitely believe in him. Hmm. So let's stick with this and see where it goes. But it did mean... Uh, turning my back on my lucrative burgeoning career as a camera monkey in London. Did, did, was that a tough... You mentioned it was a hard decision. Was it, it a hard decision in the end? or did, it, it, it was made easier yeah. by the fact that um, that my friend in London who, who was getting me the gigs, who was a focus puller, so the camera department has camera operator, focus puller, clapper loader, that was the hierarchy. Okay. And he'd moved up to focus puller, hence he was in a position to choose who was going to be the clapper loader. Yeah. He decided, he'd been in the film industry for a lot longer than me, and he decided he was sick of it and wanted to go into the wine trade, right. which was his equivalent of something that was a creative passion. Yeah. So that came just at the right time. So the work was probably going to start drying up anyway, and I would have had to have started trying to cold call people for work. So... And he's still in the... He has his own thriving wine business now. Right. And I've been in this band for 20 years and we've <laughs> travelled the world. So, yes, we made the right decision. We're yeah. quite pleased about it. Nice. And so, yeah, so you made that decision then. And so were you, work, were you playing in other bands or then did you just focus on the new Master Sounds and, I'm, you know, the, the label at that point? I think there were one or two um, other bands that I was involved with and... It's so long ago now that I, I, the chronology is all mixed up for me. <laughs> but bands that I have been in include a sort of rough, punky band called Coaster, mm. um, which was kind of Sonic Youth influenced. And that wasn't any kind of music that I was into, but I remember strategically thinking I need to be open-minded because the more types of music that I can immerse myself in, the better a musician I shall be. Yeah. So I did that at some point, but that might have been pre-Master Sounds. And then w while we were in the band, I think I tried to run various um, covers, function bands, just really to get money and to satisfy my love of disco, which was not met by the new Master Sounds. No. So there was one band called Saturn Five, which had Peach and Master Sounds bassist, um, Dan One Note Brown yeah. on guitar, Oh, Sam so he moved from bass to guitar. Well, he was already he was originally oh, guitarist. He was originally yeah. guitar. That's he, right. And he, 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 he took a that's right a back seat to Eddie's guitar yes. to do that. Um, uh, Sam on congas and the Haggis Horns yeah. and John McCallum, who um, 
ever since Corinne Bailey Ray has been a, a successful international recording artist, she has always toured with John McCallum, who plays guitar and does backing vocals. Hmm. But he was a kind of uh, Stevie Wonder type soul singer from Scotland, still is. Um, and we got this pointlessly intricate and accurate disco band together playing uh, Cool and the Gang and Hot Chocolate and various other Bill Withers stuff with very accurate attention to detail hmm. to the arrangements and we had two gigs I think <laughs> <laughs> we played at someone's 21st birthday party and uh, and then another function and then the whole thing fell apart because there weren't enough gigs so I didn't ever do anything else musically that was original or creative I don't think mm-hmm. um, during that time but we but we gradually got busier with the master sounds and started to get um, we were we'd, we'd always had gigs at the jazz cafe once or twice a year yeah and then because of this DJ network um, there would be DJs in places like Belgium and France and Holland who had heard of us because they'd got our vinyl records. Yeah, because there's quite a thriving sort of funk and soul scene in Europe, isn't there? Like, I mean, it's small still. Well, but does it still exist? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, there's in Spain, Italy, Germany, there are definitely pockets of yeah. big interest, aren't there? It's particularly from DJs and small labels. Yes, and we, we over the years, we've been involved in it. It's just got to the point now where it, it seems to have dwindled out from our point of view. Right. But it might just be that the kind of money that we need to make it worth doing now that Eddie lives in the States mm. is it's, it's, it's prohibitive. I think, well, I, I, an illustration of that is that, um, I got a festival offer from Spain this morning in my email and it was, it was for 2000 euros, which is absolutely not doable as a one-off it, but, that would be a reasonable fee to get for a, for one gig out of say three or four or five gigs. Yeah. That if 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 we had five gigs paying a similar amount, I could put a little Spanish tour together, and we'd all end up with some money at the end of it. Hmm. But just as a one-off, it's to no use. Can't can't yeah, be done. I mean, um, which is a shame because in the old days, when we all lived in the in the UK, and that we didn't have other concerns, and we didn't have so many dependents and all that too grand for a for a gig where we just got to find the flights to barcelona hmm. that'd be great yeah uh, we, i mean it we used to do it for half that <laughs> and still thought it was great yeah. absolutely <laughs> um and just the fact that we were getting a free trip to barcelona was just the the main thing and yeah wow we're playing in a foreign country <laughs> yes um and so we have had we, we started to get those kind of opportunities um to to travel around a little bit never actual touring um because the scene was special it was it was special it wasn't like you're in a band you've released a record the record's getting some traction and then a booking agent gets involved and then you hire a tour manager and then you go around europe playing in venues and the people that come have come because they've heard of your band through the promotional system like the radio and everything else that was not what we were involved in at all. It was way, way more underground. And it was just a, a DJ slash record collector slash club promoter has a regular night um, that's a, maybe a monthly thing 
or or maybe it's a weekly night, but once a month he throws a little bit of extra money in and gets a live band. And it, initially that would have been a local band. And then he gets more ambitious and he thinks, oh, maybe I could get a band from the UK. Mm. And so we had a lot of our initial experiences in that system, which is entirely under the radar of the music industry. So we never knew what it was like to have, a, um, you know, an, an agent, a tour manager, crew, a tour bus, um, promotional stuff, radio interviews. It was just, we would go, the promoter would pick us up in his car from the airport <laughs> and then we'd do a gig, but it would be, it would be a crowd of people that they hadn't come because they'd heard of the band because no one had heard of the band except the DJ. The DJ was the gatekeeper. They were coming to the night. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, they were there and the DJ promoter was the curator for yeah. them, the artistic yeah. creator. And so they would trust that person to present them with things that they might like. Yeah. Uh, so it may not have even stuck with them what the name of the band was at the end of that. Mm. And the sets were short. It was maybe we might play for an hour or 45 minutes even um, in the middle of a dance floor DJ set. So there was no interruption in the dancing as long as we held the dance floor. Mm. And when we went, when we first went to the States, that was not in any way, uh, that's not a system that they have. Um, they very much have a separate DJ and live music culture. And we were shocked because some of the first gigs we did, there would be no music playing before <laughs> we went on and no music playing afterwards. And if there was music, it would be some random rubbish that the PA engineer had personally chosen that had nothing to do with any thematic. Mm. Um, it wasn't coherent, you know. Turns out we discovered that it was generally the Grateful Dead that they were playing. <laughs> and there was a reason for this. And it was that the, the live audience that we discovered in the States was a sort of post-Grateful Dead crowd. Hmm. And that has actually been the key to how we've had any success at all in the States. So... Um, so what, in what way, what do you mean? Well, the Grateful Dead had such a big following, but it was still outside of the mainstream. And they used to allow uh, people to tape their shows and then people would share the tapes of the shows and no, no money was generally changing hands. And um, there was a sense of freedom about the genre. So I think maybe at one point the Grateful Dead had the meters opening for them. So they introduced a whole load of white hippies to black funk music mm. and suddenly it was permission for all these white people to like funk music and they were educated in it. And so that it left this legacy of a live music scene that isn't genre specific. So the, the scene that we are now doing okay on in the States has funk, psychedelic rock, obscure honk squawk jazz, bluegrass, um, Americana and electronica on it. And generally, the thing that, if there is a unifying strand to it, it's that people want to see improvisation. Mm. And the notion 
that there was a specific funk scene or a funk soul scene or a deep funk scene the kind of stuff that europe had that that was what was going on in europe that we were briefly a part of where we would have to think what stylistically about what we're playing does it fit and when we're releasing tunes is it this genre we we went over there and it wasn't relevant in a way the type of music that we were playing people had come to watch people play instruments yeah and to interact so you were doing more like three four minute tunes they wanted longer sort of jams with the musicians very much feeding off each other and they wanted it to be a different experience every time yeah and so the phenomenon of two or three consecutive gigs in the same venue was common and that is in fact the first thing we experienced was um the house of blues in chicago in 2004, um, the the guy that was the musical th- philanthropist who had um, paid for us to go over there had also arranged for us to open for this band called the Grey Boy All Stars. Yeah, and we knew about that band because they'd been to Leeds uh, and played in our local club, which was called the Underground, s- several years before. Um. He talked their manager into letting us open and we did a 40-minute set, but it was a Friday night and a Saturday night. Consecutive, same venue, House of Blues, which probably holds 1,200 people. And the the Grey Boy All-Stars pretty much filled it both nights and I got talking to people in the audience. Many of them had driven six hours to get there and were coming for both nights. Right. And I said, that is just blowing my mind because I don't know of any band in in Britain or Europe where if they were playing, you'd go and see them twice in a row. But partly that would be because they would almost certainly be playing exactly the same music both nights. Yeah. The key to this was that it was definitely a different set each night. And within, even if a song was repeated, it wouldn't be played exactly the same way. Whereas the the British model of live music is very much, you play it like the record and you only play a specific set list and it's probably the same set. Not all bands, but generally that's how it is. And people want to go to the gig to hear the song that they recognised and they like seeing the people perform it, but they're not, necessarily going to watch how the bassist might be interacting with the guitarist in that moment yeah there's a sense of spectacle and a sense of communion and community of all having this thing going on at the same time but it isn't about musical instruments really that's my experience of it okay um and i'm not sour about that but very it was very clear that the kind of thing we were doing was not really going to appeal on any kind of big level over here because it was based on this improvisational model and we didn't generally have any singing in it. So you've really got... People have got to want to watch people play their instruments um, if you're going to be playing tunes that they've never heard that don't even have lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough sell. Uh, Did it it change the the direction of the band then? I've I've read that you said that. Yeah, With that American... 
desire yeah. for that improvisational style that did that change the way you were going it changed it immediately because so that it was fine on the first two shows where we were opening and we only had to play for 40 minutes we played our model i'm just getting a cramp in my legs so i'm gonna stand up <laughs> <laughs> I'm just dancing around my living room now shaking my legs moves. um so we we played three and a half minute tunes and that itself was based on the length of what fits on a 45 yeah. right seven inch single because we, that's what we released so we we crafted tunes for that purpose and then we would play them live and they would be arranged from start to finish and they would never really deviate in structure and so we did our two opening 40 minute sets uh, but the, the the guy in chicago had arranged for us to do a pub gig our own pub gig on the sunday night and when i said oh, so how long is the set? And he went, oh, I guess probably 290 minutes. <laughs> like, what? what are you talking about? Uh, uh, we've, we've probably got about, um, I don't know, an hour's worth of material at the very most. Yeah. He said, oh, don't worry, just stretch it out. <laughs> and that was, we did. Yeah. <laughs> um, just double the length of tunes. And Yeah, and just free up the arrangements. Yeah. And it's very self-indulgent, it feels like. Um, and initially it was probably quite boring, but, and there's hardly anybody there anyway, because no one had heard of us, Mm. just his, his friends who'd maybe come down. But gradually we learnt that rather than it being boring and self-indulgent, there was something about it that was very creative and the, the possibilities were opened up and we learnt how to essentially write in the moment and we developed a a vocabulary of um, wordless communication so that we could start taking things in different directions on the fly responding to how the audience looked like they were enjoying it and what they might be willing to indulge and we, we would find that we suddenly had a new bit to attune that worked really well and that gradually would become incorporated because we would think oh let's do that thing that we did last time yeah and then we ended up with completely different arrangements of tunes that were once three and a half minutes long that have that were immortalized in the album recordings as that yeah that we are now turned into a sort of odyssey (laughs) that might go into reggae and out again for a bit um and the audiences were loving it like right. that's exactly what they'd come for and it's that it's exactly what they still come for and now that is the type of band that we are mm. and uh if we throw in the occasional three minute ditty it's sort of like a refreshing palate cleanser yeah and then you get back into the meat of it um so it's still quite odd for us to be playing less than two hours um i think when we do the gigs that, as you listen to this podcast, will have already happened, <laughs> which are the Leeds and London gigs, yeah. I think we'll maybe do two hours in Leeds, but the Jazz Cafe has got a curfew, so we'll probably only get 90 minutes there, and that'll just be over in it in the blink of an eye, I think. We'll just be starting to get into it, and then yeah. we'll have to stop. Just realise this will be going out next week, so this is the, oh. the gigs are in the future, so you can, we can promote right. the gigs. Yeah. So if anyone is here from <laughs> Leeds or London, tickets may still be available. Uh, but, yeah, that's if uh, any of this w- waffling has, has uh, piqued your interest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> Just thinking about now for a minute, um, because as you mentioned, Eddie now lives in America. Pete lives in Menorca, Spain. Yeah. yeah. So how's that affected the way the band works? Has it affected it? No, it hasn't really, because um, we haven't recorded anything in England for years. I'm trying to think what the last one was. It was probably 2008 or 2009. Where do you do the recording? We used to do it in a place called Hall Place Studios in Leeds, which no longer exists anyway. And these days we record in glamorous-sounding American cities, which have included San Francisco, um, New Orleans, Denver. And we did one once in a residential studio on the Mexican border with Texas. And... That yeah, that was a that was a tricky one. Um, there were obscure insect life that would. Like there was one thing that was uh, some kind of wasp <laughs> that apparently had the most poisonous sting in the animal kingdom. Right, and we had to run a, a gauntlet past this bush that contained these these wasps. And so one of the tunes on that album is called Run the Gauntlet. <laughs> um, God, that's an aside, isn't it? So, uh, so uh, these days, um, so we don't rehearse uh, except in really exceptional circumstances because we've been together for so long, we usually rely on the first gig after a break to be, it's going to be a bit scrappy, hmm. but it's also going to be really, really fresh so the, generally the freshness offsets the scrappiness. Yeah. And, and, and also the scrappiness is probably only really noticed by us. Unless we laugh out loud, in which case the crowd might just be like, oh, did they just, <laughs> did they just mess up then? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we, we, so we gradually, as in the course of a, as a tour progressive, as, <laughs> as a tour progresses, we gradually trade the freshness for tightness. Yes. And so it, as it becomes tighter, it also gets a bit staler. <laughs> and then maybe after three weeks, we're sick of playing it mm. and just can't wait to go home. <laughs> um, but there's a real, there's a lovely sweet spot, which yep. is where you've reestablished the, the onstage vocabulary, the unspoken one. Mm. But you're, we're still hungry to play the tunes, and part of that is that there's such a big repertoire that it takes maybe five or six gigs to get to the point where you're really having to repeat tunes again. Mm. And even if you are, it's only the second time you may have played it on that tour. So it still feels like an old friend that you want to catch up with. Yeah. Um, but then what tends to happen is that Eddie, who is in charge of the set list, starts to just whittle it down to our strongest tunes or the ones that he feels most comfortable on that are most relevant. Yeah. And then it gets to the point where he can't be bothered to write a new set for the next gig. So we're sort of playing pretty much what we did the previous night. Yeah. And that's when the, maybe the, the ennui sets in. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it's nothing like what it must be like for uh, a pop band who've just released one album who are now on tour of academy-sized venues of the UK, and they're playing the exact same 45-minute set every night with no 
deviation and hesitation but lots of repetition <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah. uh that would just do my head in like we're we're spoiled we're already complaining if we have to repeat a tune after three gigs yeah <laughs> you love the element of it being different each yes, time yes very yeah. much so but and because having done it for so long it's yeah. essential yeah but we did we did um we do these annual shows in new orleans during their uh the official thing is called the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, and it runs end of April, beginning of May, two consecutive weekends. And we have been playing in New Orleans during that period every year since 2007. And we play a late night scene in a theatre venue. Um, gig starts at 2am, <laughs> finishes at 5. Nice. There's between 800 and 1,000 people, and we each year have to have some kind of special gimmick to set us apart from the five other bands that are at the same level as us who are playing exactly the same slot in venues across town right. on the same night. So, um, one of whom is always the Grey Boy All-Stars. Okay. <laughs> so I never get to see their gigs, annoyingly, because oh, I really like that band. Um, they are a great band, by the way, aren't they? Great Boy All-Stars. They're super. They're fantastic. This year, um, we got into this thing which was... So Ed, Eddie has to... The venue gets in touch and says, Eddie, what's this, this year's gimmick? They don't say gimmick because they don't think of no. it like that. Um, and off the top of his head, he said, oh, why don't we do like something about the women of the scene and we'll get some guest vocalists? Bang. All of a sudden, we've got seven guest female vocalists and we're having to craft a set of about 20 tunes. But th this is while I'm back in Leeds, Pete's in Menorca, Joe's in the Peak District and Eddie's in Denver. <laughs> and we're not getting together until New Orleans in May right. for the first gig. And that'll be at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so we went from January <laughs> to May with no gigs. And, and pretty much the first gig we did is this insane... <laughs> I, I think we did 18 covers. Right. And we had these seven different singers all all playing singing in different combinations like sometimes it'd be one with three backing vocalists sometimes it'd be all of them sometimes each would take a verse and the others would do backing yeah and we had horns as well an american horn section and so for that eddie did concede that we needed a rehearsal <laughs> i'm pretty it sure that was reasonable i'm pretty sure if i hadn't mentioned it <laughs> he would have thought we could just blag it in the sound check <laughs> and this is because he has uh a, a photographic memory, or but whatever the audio equivalent of photography okay, is. Okay, yeah, I get what you mean. <laughs> um, and he holds a, a new set of tunes in his head every week because he plays with lots of other people and has various projects going. And he says that if he'd have tried to learn these tunes any more than two days in advance, they would have been nudged out of his short-term memory by whatever set he had to right. learn in the <laughs> meantime. So, th so he didn't bother. There's no point. No. Yeah. Um, but we managed to get this rehearsal on the day of the gig which lasted three hours and we got to at least top and tail every single tune we were doing and then went home went to sleep got up at midnight and then got to the venue at one got on stage at two and blagged our way through by the seat of our pants but it was so much fun it, just, it felt like such a, a an achievement real buzz yeah. of, at the end of it it's like Coming yes we did five, it five and i've got videos of it and it's just it sounds really good um Brilliant. but it's just covers it's a covers band you yeah. know so i i tend to get excited about it because i find that a musical challenge whereas eddie is very much more 
yeah, but I don't want to be in a cabaret band. Yeah, um, yeah. So he doesn't get as excited about it as I do. Um, so maybe I should just be on, on a cruise ship <laughs> <laughs> playing disco covers. <laughs> I'm passing there. You mentioned photography. And I wanted to ask you about that because I saw you describe yourself as a musician sometimes and a photographer all the time. Yes. So That's just tell a- me about when did you... Because I know you have photographs online that you, you that are for sale. I mean, yeah, when did you start getting into that? I got into that via um, the the film and TV work that I mentioned yep. earlier in the podcast. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I observed the work of the cinematographers that I was working for and picked up some principles that were both technical and artistic about composition, lighting, exposure, hmm. focus, that kind of thing. And then when I gave up the film industry, that's when I just decided, oh, actually, I could start taking pictures and and kind of took it from there. And it got to a point where I was doing it semi-professionally and I gradually acquired all the gear and would do jobs for people, events and stuff and some occasional portraits. And also I would have a kind of creative project that I would explore so there was one there's loads of different types of thing you can do with photography and I would sort of see an example of something and think oh I'll let me try that so one of the ones that was fun was strobe photography Mm. where you um you have to it has to be dark and you get some kind of movement so somebody galloping through the shot and then you set a flash to go off several times and and the the shutter is just left open and then you get sort of images of this same person still images of this person running but frozen Hmm. but loads of them in the same picture so i got into that for one of the things and sort of long exposure city photography with on a tripod and Hmm. so generally i sort of try bits and pieces out just for my own personal artistic satisfaction Hmm. um but at the point where you've come to ask me about it, mm. I was feeling like that photographer all the time, drummer some of the time, really doesn't apply anymore. Right. Because I've had I've hit a bit of a lull with the photography. Okay. And it's been partly caused by the fact that the, all the gear I've got is so heavy and cumbersome. And the the quality of iPhones and the immediacy of them and the the, the awful buzz that you get from the instant feedback of social media. All of that has corrupted me. Right. And the last two tours that I did, I left my camera's stuff at home. I mean, it's, right. a, it's a commitment to take it because it's a, a, a DSLR, yeah. several lenses, some some gadgets, some flash gear, occasionally a tripod. So had you been documenting the, the previous tours? Yes. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a lot of stuff, and I, I took that quite seriously. I thought, okay, this is part of my job now is to just keep a photographic record of the band. Hmm. But this was in the days before social media. So there's a whole load of stuff from the early days. But as soon as Facebook and Instagram and Twitter started to take over our lives, my photographic documenting of the band has kind of dwindled into stuff that I've taken on my iPhone. Yeah. Which makes me sad and ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) And um, but I, I 
I am doing a job for somebody on Saturday. It's a theatre company that I've worked for before and they want me to go and photograph one of their events. Mm. So that, ca- that came through. I thought, oh, that's nice. So maybe I still am a photographer. But at the yeah. moment, I don't feel like one. Right. And I don't really feel like a drummer either because I <laughs> haven't done a gig since the end of June. What do you feel like at the moment? I feel like the, uh, the parent of a, an unruly teenager. Right. Mainly. <laughs> um, and uh, Metaphorically, do you mean, or, or actually? I literally am that. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that is the thing that is uh, uh, it's kind of, cons- that, that's my immediate con- daily concern is, yeah. is that. Um, but I am, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to keep my musical hand in. So I'm, I'm working my way up towards practicing for these two gigs that are coming up because I've got a bit sloppy and, and loose. So that's a physical and mental training thing mm. that needs to happen. I've got the piano um, because I'm constantly trying to develop my ear so that I can... Um, the, the other three guys in the band who play bass, guitar and um, piano, mm-hmm. they have all been working this muscle for decades. So you play them something, its mysteries are immediately unlocked to them. They're just able to see it. It's their first language. Yeah. So Joe would immediately decipher the chord progression and it, it's, there's not very much that it could be that they wouldn't be able to actually pick out yeah. straight away just with their ear. And I recognize that that is a really important skill and i'm kind of trying i'm aspiring to get to that point myself Mm. so every day i try and get to the piano play something and and extract its secrets through using my ear without cheating and looking it up on the internet which is now possible for almost anything it is isn't it yeah and occasionally i get to the point where i just can't figure out one chord and i look it up and it's like, oh, it's all oh, right, an upside down diminished thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. um, but it's really useful, I think, to, to do that. And also, it, that's the only way you can really have any kind of compositional repertoire, is if, is if you absorb all that from other music. So that's my sort of personal development plan, mm. is to try and do that every day. And, um, but I've also got, the on the label side of it, I am... Um, busy at the moment with coordinating the production of an album called the Nashville Session Two. Hmm. I should should call it Nashville Session Two Electric Boogaloo, but um, <laughs> it actually doesn't have very much boogaloo on it, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but we we recorded this in a one day studio session on our last tour in June in Nashville, hmm. and. It's just a live studio document of a load of the tunes that we play in our live set. So we already released one of these three years ago. It was very popular and it sounds great. And we thought, may as well do this again because we're going through Nashville. So at the moment, I had last night I had a meeting with a graphic designer about how to proceed. Because we want, we want the cover to look similar to the first one, but different enough so that people don't mix them up on yeah. the shelf. Yeah. Um, and... There's a guy in Colorado who's mastering it at the moment and I'm going back and forth with him on emails and he sends me little, little um, trial versions of things. And he, he, I said, look, if you listen to the first album, try and match as close as possible this sort of sonic approach of that with this new album, if you can. And he's yeah. done quite a good job. Um, and that, so that involves just really coordinating stuff. It's not... 
it's not creative per se. No. But it's more of my more of my admin yeah. skills coming in again. It's Excel yeah. being used. As yes, well. Excel <laughs> being used. And and then at some point I'll have to register all the tracks. Yeah. And I, I, I there's a bit of writing involved because I have to write the blurb on the back. So there's a bit of journalism. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked at the uh, the original album yesterday and I read it. And I thought, oh. <laughs> I mean, it's quite. It's, I quite like it, yeah. but the idea that I've now got to write something again that that is different enough from that yeah. that does the same job <laughs> fills me with dread. <laughs> and yet, that's what I must do at you know some point this week and yeah. then send it to him. Um, and then the other stuff that I'm keeping busy. So there's an element of tour managing, which is the two UK gigs need to be advanced with the venues and I've got to make sure that the back line that we use, which is the amps and the drum kits and stuff, because we don't have our own gear really mm. in this country. Okay. Um, I have to make sure that's all right. And the transport for that is because Eddie's flying from Washington, DC. Pete's flying over from Spain. Yeah. I've got to get hotels for them in some places. And So you look after all that side of things? The, for, for, any, for the rare times that we play over here. Right. Yeah. And then when we're in the States... Um, we have had in the past, it got to the heady heights of a, a real tour bus with a trailer with all our gear in it, two crew members and a bus driver. That's, that's where it's got the closest that it's ever got to being like a real band. <laughs> right? uh, but at the end of that tour, we had no wages. And it was so depressing. Everything had gone. Yeah, it all, yeah, it all and just, you hadn't lost it. You'd actually paid no. people. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but there was some, you know, but it was a, a pitifully small amount of money. And it was just yeah. like, We've been gigging for five weeks. What? This is terrible. Um, so that's we, the reality, though, yeah. isn't it? For you know, for many bands. Well, it's just that we weren't. We're not big enough to sustain yeah. that kind of infrastructure. It, at a certain point, not that far ahead of where we are, that all that stuff makes sense. It's actually the most efficient and cheapest way of doing it. Yeah. But we just didn't quite have the numbers for it, and so we've we've realised now. Okay, let's just shave this back again. And now we're doing quite a lot of stuff without any tour manager it's just the four of us and eddie and i are using the skills that we developed in the formative years and now we're quite familiar with how america works yeah we understand how to drive there how to rent a car how to plan a journey mm. interact with the venues and stuff so we cover that between us now yeah and so it's back to just the four of us right and it's it's good it's kind of like circle it. yeah yeah you, you mentioned uh, looking after an unruly teenager is what you do. And I saw you describe yourself as a nagging parent. So what do you nag your kids oh, about? God. So what, uh, that. So you've got two kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. How so, old are they? One's 14 and one's 12. Okay. So what, yeah, what do you nag them about? Uh, well, the, the, the younger one, is, is, he hasn't hit puberty yet and he's fine. He's still very, uh, he's compliant. <laughs> Doesn't kick too, kick up too much of a fuss. No, no, it never does really. The older one has always been very headstrong, and he's highly strung, um, and he's it's very much like me actually, mm. which is why it's so difficult. Because when <laughs> when you, you've got a son, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. He's only two though, so yeah, haven't well, got these problems yet. When my son was two, the, the older one, it, it, he was displaying exactly the same personality traits okay. as, he, as he still is now. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, at the moment, it's just, it's difficult. What were they? What were those traits? Just kind of deviousness and uh, willfulness. Yeah. And non-obedience. Well, that's worrying because that's, <laughs> that's what my son does now. So he's not, he's yeah. not going to change. Is that what you're telling me? I, he might, that might just be his personality. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like toddlers are difficult anyway. Yeah. But, um, some toddlers are harder work than others. Yes. And um, 
uh, my only experiences of male toddlers <laughs> and yeah he, he was definitely Four. hard work but we we yeah we 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 are close but he is in this teenage think at the moment where he's trying to define himself it's just yeah. desperate to get an identity and it, that is i think it, the one he's gone for is sort of urban gangster <laughs> <laughs> so he, he has uh, like he goes out in the heat, the sweltering heat with a really thick hoodie on with the hood up yeah. and shuffles down the street and yeah. listens to that uh, awful South London oh yeah uh, pro, like the I say it's awful I I understand that I it's not grime, is it? It's something else, like post-grime. I was going to say grime, but I, obviously I'm behind the times, so yeah. Uh, but it's that there these people are expressing uh, their own social reality yeah and they're poets and artists and i respect them but the the programming that they use for the backing tracks is so lame and so unimaginative hmm. that it just makes for some really nasty soulless music and it, very occasionally there's one that's got something in it because if you go to um 90s hip-hop hmm. dr dre was sampling some really really great quite obscure funk yeah so you've got drums and bass and groove and just tastiness mm. with some amazing rapping on the top. Yeah. Even if they are rapping about, you know, hoes and guns and stuff. <laughs> um, that the was music their, behind it was yeah, amazing. That, and that was their reality. It wasn't, yeah. you know. Yeah. But um, now, and it's probably just because I'm 45. Yeah. And so the past seems like it was better. <laughs> that every generation feels that... Let's be honest, everyone feels that way. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have to try. But, um, yeah, my son uh, is, a, is a pretty tasty drummer. But unfortunately, because I'm a drummer, and he's defining himself in opposition he to me in to order to forge an identity, yeah. he can't do, have anything to do with music yet. He'll probably come back to it. Yeah. But it, every day's a challenge, and <laughs> uh, it's frustrating, and... I, I just, I take comfort in that I've spoken to other parents of teenagers, especially boys, who've told me that they now have this lovely 19-year-old who's one of their best friends who phones them several times a week, meets up for them, goes out for coffee with them, chats, and has lots of things going for them, lots of interests. Yeah. And that same person was just this hideous sociopath <laughs> for several years. <laughs> and... Um, and that, but but we even though we may have known them at the time they didn't let on that they were yeah. going through this awful trauma yeah but yeah I did oh it, it's 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 a real challenge and it's something that if if you manage to keep your children alive till they reach teenagehood <laughs> which is your main job now yeah yes it is um, and if you've got a toddler that means you're pretty much on suicide watch <laughs> isn't it because yeah. they're they're just tottering around <laughs> towards sharp surfaces with not a clue yeah. and very little coordination putting themselves in harm's way yeah a lot and you're of the there time. just sweeping them away from the edge um but yeah if you manage to get to them to the point where they can tell you to f off <laughs> then you've um you've you've succeeded in some way you've yeah. <laughs> so what about i mean is there, are there anything away from you know, you're saying about being nagging, and is it is it to do with like them using electronic devices, or what? What are the key things? Well, that... uh, it, these days, it would be, um, can could you just maybe not leave your towel on the floor, or bring your bowl down, <laughs> rather than adding to the collection of of stale cereal bowls that are in your room? Yeah. Um, not 
chuck rubbish on the floor, stick it in the bin that's next to where it went on the floor. Yeah. Just kind of basic civilized basic civilized stuff yeah. that that just doesn't occur to them and i think that's quite a normal aspect of te- the teenage boy mind hmm. telling them to wash every day is also important and then okay. reminding them to wear deodorant okay. the, these are the today's concerns crucial skills <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but in the when i put that biog up hmm. which said that i was a photographer and a nagging parent and various other things i guess the kind of things i would have been nagging them about would have been entirely different and i can almost not remember what it's like to have children children yeah i I sort of miss it um in what way i just miss the innocence of you you being the person that they want to hang out with yeah and that at the time i remember thinking oh (laughs) you know a six seven year old child it's not it's not great company you can you can enjoy it for a bit but yeah. it becomes tedious after a short space <laughs> time and it's even more the case with babies and toddlers yeah and you tell yourself you're lucky to be able to hang out with them so but yeah. really you're Savor just it while it's there yeah you're there and you're looking at your phone and <laughs> and feeling slightly bad about it yeah and they're asking a question again and or, or having a an emotional response to something that you as an adult regard as entirely trivial <laughs> and it becomes wearing and you start to question yourself and you thought you think I, I thought i'd be more patient as a person hmm. than this and i'm be- I, I you know you you catch yourself becoming irritable hmm. and all these things and but it's every everybody is like that yeah a- apart from those really annoying professional mums some of them you will have encountered. Yes. Who, but are they really like that behind the scenes? Who knows? But they seem to have just devoted their entire lives <laughs> to that. To everything is just all about the kids. Yeah. And they know everything about the timetabling of any like toddler group or nursery or school or what's going on. It, 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 and it runs all the way through the school career as well. Yeah. I guess you've got to see how they uh, turn out in the end. Yes. <laughs> yeah, does it, do, do they end up being uh, healthy, happy, independent people? Well, we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you meant just to rewind again then for you then in terms of thinking about, you know, being a parent, what did your mum and dad encourage you to be creative? What, what did they do? And oh, what did, were they an influence on you wanting to be a musician or photographer, or filmmaker? Only in that I felt that they had really dull lives and I didn't want that for myself. <laughs> what did they do? Well, it, it was just that my mum was a district nurse yeah. and my dad had a, some kind of clerical job for the NHS and they didn't, they weren't really into music and they weren't really into literature or um, or art or theatre or anything and so I just remember feeling like so me defining myself in opposition to them hmm. was hungering after all that kind of cultural stuff that I could latch my identity onto so I'm kind of grateful because for my son it's the other way around yeah. he, he now is going away from anything like that because that's who I am Yeah, and so it, maybe it's come full circle. Maybe he's going. He's going for the unremarkable, <laughs> uncreative life. I don't know. Um, but my I, my mum was supportive. She didn't freak out when I dropped out of my languages degree because I wanted to follow a musical career. Um, and 
Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I would say that my, my influences have really come from the people I've met since I left home, though. The the other musicians, and the members of my own band are probably the biggest influences on me. Pete and Pete and Eddie, especially. Hmm. Um, Joe, our keyboard player, joined in two thousand and seven, so he's the new guy. But he he's just a, a very inspiring piano player, and because I want to be a better pianist myself, hmm. um, I. I, I, I feel grateful that I get to play with him every night. Yeah. Um, although while I'm drumming, I can't be thinking about what he's actually playing. No. It just sounds amazing. It <laughs> sounds like magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but occasionally I get him to break things down for me and they're like, oh, what? Tell me how you do that. And mm. that's great. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say family was a, a big influence. Were they ever worried that, about you? pursuing that career rather than going for something more sort of conventional? I don't think so. I no. mean, I think my, my, my mum, to her credit, just wanted me to be happy. Hmm. And I guess she worried, oh, will you be able to make a living out of it? Yeah. Um, and is she, like I, she, she and I are both grateful that I was eventually able yeah. to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I feel very privileged to have found something... I can do with my life that most people want to do. Yeah. And I, I've managed to sort of fiddle it, fiddle the system, swindle everybody. <laughs> and it, I, that I don't actually have to have a day job. <laughs> so, so, but that, but that not having, not having the day job, um, kind of brings up certain existential pressures. Yeah. Where I can sometimes be just thinking, oh, what am I for? What's my identity? Um, and as I mentioned before, when, when the band hasn't... We're, we're on a bit of a hiatus at the moment. And if we haven't played for two and a half months, I don't really think of myself as... I'm Simon, the drummer of the new Master Sounds. Yeah. I think of myself as, Ugh, I, uh, I'm some bloke <laughs> who's hanging around the house... Yeah, waiting for something. ...searching for meaning. Yeah. <laughs> That's a heavy responsibility. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> so I'm trying to dismiss those thoughts when they when they come because I've I had had to bat bat sort of bat them away yeah. um, over the last few decades really. Yeah. Um, and as I've got older, I've realised actually, no, you're lucky. Most people don't want to be having to do the, their job every day. Yeah. Um, I would like to be working more than I am, hmm. but I don't think I want a job that I have to do every day. Yeah. And I like the variety and I like the freedom. Yeah. And th that feels good. And I, so I'm, I'm not taking it for granted. It doesn't, it doesn't last long when I have these existential woes <laughs> before I'll then just do some drum practice, yeah. some piano practice, go for a run, go for a bike ride. Um, I just, I'm finding that I'm uh, rebuilding a network of fellow daytime loafers. Right. Because at this age, it is rare... Uh, to find people who don't have to be somewhere during the day. Yes. Um, but there are a few of them out there. I've got a friend who's an actor and a radio presenter. Right. And he and I go to a climbing wall sometimes during the day in the week. I've got another friend who has Mondays off work. He's a doctor. And he and I go for a bike ride. And then I've just met a fitness instructor guy who wants to come around and have a jam during the day. <laughs> oh, nice. So uh, with... I, with that, I hopefully have a bit of a network of meaningful ways to spend the day. And then yeah. there's all the admin that 
your favourite. I'm, I'm reluctantly good at. Yeah. <laughs> You've got your niche with the other yeah. one. Which you oh, part of that, it, the part of the spreadsheet thing is because of the label essentially collects money on behalf of people and then distributes money. Yeah. And twice a year, I have to collect all the information of what's happened in the previous six months and then add up what I owe to the rest of the band and anyone else that I might have have their intellectual property yep. and then pay royalties to them. Right. And that is one it's of big the... big responsibility. It, it is, and it's also... It, the incentives are all wrong hmm. because it's the most tedious job in my repertoire of jobs that I have to do and the reward at the end of it is that I have to pay people. <laughs> yeah, you don't get paid <laughs> no, for that job. Because the money's already come in. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, how much of this money isn't mine? <laughs> and yeah. at, at the end of it, when I finally click, add up, do all the things, tally it up, and now I can email everyone and go, good news, I owe you this amount of money. And, and then I shut the computer. I'm like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is a responsibility. And I haven't figured out what will happen after my death. Either. If I suddenly die, yeah. which um, could happen to any of us at any point, there isn't really a system in place for anyone to decipher my very obscure homemade spreadsheet system. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the, the record label, although I would sort of bequeath that yeah. to my uh, indifferent teenage son, <laughs> there's no way that he would know. No. Like it's, 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 it's like it would be like bequeathing a dilapidated house that costs more to run. Uh, do you know what I yeah, mean? Like a country Just, estate. Yeah, <laughs> with a massive tax bill attached to it. Yeah. Like, oh, I've inherited You have to pay this. people every six months. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, but not just that. You have to do some really hard and tedious sums in order to pay them. Yeah. And you, have, you can't not do that. No. Like, no one's going to want to inherit my record label. No. <laughs> but you, they'll leave that for someone else to untangle. Yes, yes. And I, it won't matter to me. No. <laughs> Just one brief one before. I'm, I've got three questions that um, I ask everyone that I speak to at the end. But I just wanted to ask you a bit. You mentioned the running and cycling. Now, I know that you've, you've said you recently, before we uh, started recording, you said you recently started doing running. But you've been a cyclist for a while, haven't you, I think? And so what, what are the attraction of those two things? Do you find that they help you, you know, in any way in terms of the drumming or the photography? Or, you know, does it feed into everything else or are they just pure escapism? Um, they are... So the cycling, which I got into probably six years ago, just before I turned 40, hmm. um, I find that that is just a really lovely way to explore the local countryside. And in a way that is different from driving through it in a car. It's so much more immediate. You can smell it. You can see it. You're, you're going slower. Hmm. But it's also exhilarating because you can bomb down hills. There's a sense of uh, challenge, which is going up the hill. And then there's the immediate reward, which is bombing down at the other side. A, a sense of get, getting fit and preserving one's health as one gets older. And also the camaraderie, which is, I, although I will... Um, cycle on my own and when I do I have a, I have podcasts such as yours yeah. uh, for company um, uh, I much prefer cycling it with with one or more other people and during that time it's a, it's a, a chatting thing and it's generally men and so it's a it's a kind of male community thing um, and at the end and there's a, there's a maybe a, a lunch in a cafe and there's different routes to explore. So it's getting to know the local area, getting some exercise, having uh, excellent chats yeah. with, with other guys. So it's a real... 
um, you know, there's nothing that's bad about it. Yeah. And the running. So my wife's been running forever and I didn't think I could do it, but I decided to start doing it in January. And I've now got to the point where I can run 5k reasonably fast and come back completely soaked in sweat (laughs) and have a shower and the rest of the day I just feel like I've already achieved something yeah and it's a really great feeling um and uh the 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 appeal of running if your knees still work is that there's no faffing around yeah just get out the door because the bike is a faff last night um my wife came back from work early-ish and said do you want to go for a walk and I said I find walking boring let's go for a ride and it was probably half an hour before we actually got out on our bikes and we went for a 10 mile ride that took us just under an hour or something um and it was great but there's a lot of faffing around with the kit Hmm. and all the lycra and stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the special shoes Um, and then the third the third thing that i'm into is indoor rock climbing oh yeah and that is also a combination of there's, there's a mental challenge which is look at the problem figure out how you're going to solve it fail a couple of times yeah and then figure it out and succeed so you get the sense of achievement there's fitness element you get that delayed onset muscle soreness a couple of days later which Mm. makes you really realize you've done something quite good and there's camaraderie there as well there's there's you can i go there sometimes with a friend but if i go on my own it's not long before i'm chatting to to somebody whose name i will never learn Mm. about the problem and we're trading tips on how to solve it um and i I, there's some people there who i've seen a few times and never asked their names i know nothing else about them and there's something quite nice about that yeah you just have that relationship about that one thing yeah 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 yeah. it's great so i'd like to finish then by asking you three things that i've asked everyone so the first one is and i guess you do lots of different things but I think maybe we think about in relation to the drumming. So when you're doing, say, drum practice or getting ready for a gig, do you have like a routine, a set of things that you have to do or feel like you have to do to be ready to play? Um, I'm start. I'm I'm trying to. So I, I suppose I would say I aspire to having a routine like that and sticking to it. Mm. And the latest one is that I've now got two weeks between now and the gig to get match fit hmm. again to be able to play a two hour set with the master sounds which is a quite a tall order in terms of physical stamina hmm. but also in terms of intricacy with finger sticking and all that kind of stuff yeah so my my regime that i started yesterday <laughs> is uh d- do 20 minutes on a practice pad in the morning hmm. and then try and do an hours of an hour's worth of actual drumming per day, listening along either to Master Sounds tunes, which is very boring for me to do, um, or to some other stuff that I like, some mm. other funky music. Um, yesterday I was playing along to Got To Be Real by Cheryl Lynn, a, a, a sort of disco funk classic. Yeah. And just listening carefully to the drums and then copying the part as quickly as I can and then sticking to it and playing along that that's quite fun especially so maybe I guess half an hour of boring play along to master sounds tunes and then half an hour of uh find a funk song Mm. that I haven't played before work it out and then do it and then also I have I have a, a a guy that I teach drums to and 
I'll generally he'll he'll come and I'll generally get to work with him on something that I've just worked out myself. Right. So that'll cement it. Yeah. And then I can deconstruct it for him. Also try and he's right-handed, I'm left-handed, so I try and learn how to play it right-handed. Yeah. Which is an extra level of coordination for me. Yeah. Uh, which helps then just anything. It's like altitude training. Yeah. Just like the the with the practice pad. You don't necessarily know that it's helping, but doing it every day and then doing a gig, you just feel that there's some magic in your fingers. Yeah. That yeah. it's muscle memory or something and and strength and stamina. Yeah. And so, what about, actually before, do you need to have like two cups of tea or some, you mentioned before when I arrived, you were having, we had second breakfast. Is that something that you have to have before you play or how does it, in uh, terms of setting yourself up? Uh, with So when I'm touring, yeah. Um, then the the general vibe of that is um sound check yeah dinner sleep all oh, right and then gig pre-gig sleep yeah and that's generally going to give me the strength and stamina i need to get How through long for, the gig. well because the routine can be punishing it could be that we've had to get up at six yeah. fly across the country go straight to the sound check having having not really had enough sleep if I have time between dinner and the gig, I can sometimes sleep for four hours, five hours, depending on how much of my other sleep has been stolen yeah. and how late the gig is. Yeah, sure. And sometimes there's only time for a 20-minute power nap, or, but I can do pretty much any, whatever length of time is available. I can generally do that. And then when I'm on the gig, I'm really grateful for it. Sometimes there's this brief period of waking up confused not knowing where you are <laughs> and then having the realization that you have to go and do a gig and it's at that point you feel a bit sick you feel groggy and it's the last thing in the world that i would, would want to do it's go on stage by the time i'm on stage 20 minutes later sometimes sometimes really? between getting out of bed if the hotel's right next to the venue <laughs> it might be that i was in bed 20 minutes before i'm on stage right and I get on and within the first song I'm thinking oh yes and I know I have the strength and stamina to do this thanks yeah. to that nap Got but it'd you. be nice to wake up and be able to make myself a cup of tea generally <laughs> because that helps with this you know to clear out your head get things back in order yeah okay second question um, when you look back over everything um, and this can be you know about the music can be about whatever what's the thing that you sort of think back and you were sort of most proud of? You know, like it, so it's not about money or it's not about... Well, it would have to not be about money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, it definitely wouldn't be about money. But when you, when you, when you think back over everything and it, let's say something just pops in your head and you just think, yeah, that was it. That was when... Absolutely... Well, I, I, I mean, it might be the thing I already mentioned, which is playing the, the Starsky and Hutch theme with the James Taylor Quartet yeah. in an amphitheatre in Bilbao. Yeah. That... I think that might have been the thing that meant the most to me because it had meant so much to you at a young age. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. you thought that there's, it never even occurred to you that that might actually happen no. one day. When your when your heroes become your peers. Yeah. Um, and I know you only wanted that one answer, and I'm so so long winded. And if anyone's still <laughs> listening, I apologise. Um, but uh, a couple of times there have been instances like that where we've we've met Maceo Parker. Yeah alto sax player for James Brown listeners and there was one time that it was a festival he was I think a floating artist and he came up to the side of the stage while we were jamming one of our grooves and he started nodding his head <laughs> and then he made it you could see that he'd, he'd 
got a resolution in his head and he opened his sax case, built his saxophone and walked on stage and joined in. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, wow. And then at the end he'd said, yeah, I, I, I really loved that and I wanted to be a part of it. And, and That's amazing. And then he stayed for another. And, and then Carl Denson, who is the, the, currently playing with the Rolling Stones on sax, hmm. but he is the sax player from the Grey Boy All-Stars. He was doing a tune with us and so Maceo came back and duetted with him on saxophone. <laughs> so that was a, one of those, uh, I must, this is definitely going to be remembered yeah. moments. And then a, a couple of others are Ziggy from the Meters, yeah. the, the guy who I the originally drummer. just heard yeah, on a, cass- a cassette in my basement 20, 20-something plus years ago. Hmm. Uh, we had managed to get him to come and do a gig with us, two drum kits in san francisco (laughs) and so i was playing meters tunes with ziggy looking over at him yeah and then he was playing master sounds tunes that he'd learned in advance of the gig (laughs) so that was the special that's special yeah yeah. that must be very special (laughs) um and then final question then and this can be it can be a book it can be music can be something on tv what is it that you're into or watching or listening to or reading right now that you're really excited about or really into? Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you ex- opened it up to TV Yeah, because it's bodyguard, the, the Jed Mercurio, um, kind of, I've, heard, t- I've not actually it's, seen any of this, but I've heard a lot about it. This is the BBC drama, a, isn't it? Tense, BBC? Yeah. Tense, yeah, isn't it? um, police drama. Yeah. He, he used to do line of duty. Yeah. And I watched all four seasons of that. Um, and I'm just annoyed at the moment because it's just being um, drip fed once a week. Yeah. And you want to binge? Yeah. My wife and I binged the first three episodes over the course of two nights. Right. And now we're kind of just going, when's the next one on? Not till Sunday. <laughs> what? It's very <laughs> ridiculous. Old school, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I love, um, I used to love Spooks. Yeah. And if you watch Spooks now, it looks really crap. It's got a bit like The Professionals. Do you remember that yeah, in the yeah. 70s? Yeah. That is so crap. <laughs> it, you can get some of it on YouTube and nobody knew what they were doing. The actors, the cameraman, the editor, the scriptwriter, it's all absolute shite. <laughs> and I remember at the time thinking, this is amazing. Yeah. The Professionals are amazing. And I look, I, I loved Spooks at the time throughout, was it late 90s, early noughties yeah, maybe? Be, yeah, early noughties I think, wasn't it? It was just compelling. I loved the whole secret agent thing um, and the peril and, you know... I don't like violence, but some of it is exciting, you know, people chasing each other and working against the clock to defuse a bomb and all that. Yeah. Very exciting. And, and I'm getting that from uh, Bodyguard at right. the moment. So there you are. Very lowbrow. <laughs> and I was sitting here as well by the piano. Is there anything that you've been learning on the piano that you uh, um, fancy busting out to finish, well, off, I, finish I, things I, off? I can't play it very well yet, but when Aretha died, yeah. I did tell myself that I needed to have a go. So I, I'll just play you the... I'm going to pass you the mic, but it's the first few chords of Until You Come Back to Me, um, which... You'll you'll be able to tell that I'm not really a very good piano player, but um No, that's how I mess it up. <laughs> and So that's my thing that I'm kind of trying to work on at the moment. Um, 
and then uh, there was a Steely Dan. Uh, hey, nineteen. Yeah, and, and I, I, um, I find that if I try and work out something like Steely Dan, which has got really tricky chords in, from my perspective, it just it's it's hard work, uh, but it's it, a bit more like altitude training. Again, the, the simpler chord progressions they just immediately reveal themselves to me mm. once I've tried to decipher that kind of stuff. Um, so I've, I. I've, I would like to work more on that kind of thing, but I do feel quite pleased with myself for having put the work in yeah. just some of it. But I, I haven't got to the point where I could confidently perform any of that stuff in no. front of an audience, although I did just give you a little tinkle it does then. Sound, it sounded good to me, and that is a brilliant way to finish. So, Simon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.